How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started uh, this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and uh, make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to focus on the teaching of the word this evening. Then I will will open in prayer. One, a couple of requests that we need to, Sandy's not here, but she'll hear this. A couple of requests we need to make sure to, because uh, it hadn't made it to the prayer list. John Williamson is now in his started classes at Dallas Theological Seminary. And also we added, um, um, we added Harold Hall. Bryce and Ann know Harold Hall. Little, little Harold was like about five years old with big glasses when I first went to Preston City Bible Church, and he has just, he is so excited. He just started his first semester at New Tribes Missions Bible Institute, and he is wanting to be a missionary with New Tribes Missions. That's quite an undertaking. So we have him now on our prayer list. All right, well, after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege we have to serve you. It's a great privilege we have to come together and study your word. And, Father, it's encouraging when we see young men like John and like Harold and Matt Hagemeyer and others who are willing to take the time to focus their lives upon a study of your word and taking the time to get trained, to go to Bible college, to go to seminary, and to spend a lifetime serving you, whether that's in a full-time professional capacity or whether their training just... uh, ends up improving their understanding of your word so that they can have a significant ministry in the local church. Father, we also pray for students as the semester has begun at Word of God Bible College in Kiev and for Jim Myers, for all the students there, and we pray for them. Father, challenge us with what we study this evening as we continue to understand your plan for us, your plan through the church age. Help us to put the pieces together, understand that there is... Just as there is a plan on a large macro scale, that there is a plan on a micro scale for us in terms of our own spiritual life, and we have to understand how that fits in, that especially in the coming lessons as we focus on future things, that what we are doing today in our spiritual life will have a tremendous impact on our participation and our role in future events. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, last time we finished up looking at when the rapture occurs. And so that's the title for tonight's lesson, When is the Rapture? It's next week. Get ready. No, that's not what I mean. I mean, when is it in relation to other events, especially in terms of that big debate that goes on all the time? Is the rapture before the tribulation, after the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, Or do we have a partial tribulation where different members of the church go up at different times through the through the tribulation period? In in one sense, when we talk about the the issues related to the pre-trib rapture, 
it boils down to understanding the distinctiveness of the church. It may surprise you a little bit, but in a technical sense, dispensationalism, because of its, its emphasis on the church, is sort of a subcategory almost of ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is that category of systematic theology that relates to the study of the, the, the doctrines in the scripture related to the church. And so as we look at the church in the church age, and we're all members of the church age, the question that people ask is related to our future destiny, the future destiny of the church, and people want to know, are we going to go through the tribulation? And often when you read critics of dispensationalism, they act as if they can't read. I'm just amazed at how these people can't read. We're not asking if we go through tribulation. We're asking if we go through the tribulation. We're not looking for some sort of panacea so that we can go through life without having to go through difficulty, adversity, challenges, or heartaches. That is going to be true for every believer in every every generation. Uh, Job wrote that a man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And trouble and adversity is going to be part of everyone's life. The doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture is not some sort of escape clause so that we can avoid uh, tribulation. If you just look at the history of the church age, you realize that there are so many believers down through the ages that have gone through untold misery and suffering and persecution for their faith in Christ that have been martyred in horrible, horrible ways. Uh, for their faith in Christ. And that's uh, that, in one sense, is related to those who are being attacked by Christians, I mean, by those who are outside of the church. But then when you go back and you study some of the things that have taken place in terms of Christian-to-Christian persecution, things that occurred during the uh, Middle Ages, things that occurred during the Reformation period and the post-Reformation period, and some of the religious wars that took place during the uh, 16th century and into the 17th century, there's been a tremendous amount of tribulation. Uh, the Greek word is thlipsis, and a tremendous amount of adversity that Christians have gone through because of their stand for the truth and stand for the Bible. But when we talk about the rapture and the fact that the church-age believers don't go through the tribulation, it, it, is, it has to do with an understanding of God's plan and purposes uh, for the church. So when we ask this question, when is the rapture, we're asking this in relation to future events, things that have not happened yet, and whether or not we as church-age believers might go through the tribulation. Now, we may go through a lot of persecution. We may go through a lot of hostility. We have no idea what the pre-rapture, circumstances going to be on the earth leading up to as the stage is set for the tribulation itself. Now, here's our chart. We're down here at the end. We've gone through the uh, Old Testament age of, is of the Gentiles and the age of Israel, uh, the, the uh, transitional dispensation, the hinge dispensation of the Messianic age. Now we're in the church age, somewhere near the end of the church age, and the church age ends, as we've seen, with the rapture. When our Lord Jesus Christ returns in the air 
And with a, with a command, with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ rise first. That is a, technically a resurrection. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. The Greek word's harpazo. The, uh, Latin word that was used to translate that is rapio, where we get our word rapture. And that's, that shows that it is indeed a biblical term. Sometime, and we'll study this sometime after the rapture itself occurs, the tribulation will begin. The rapture doesn't have anything to do with when the tribulation begins. The tribulation begins when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with the, um, with Israel, and that kicks off what is called Daniel's 70th week, and we may get there tonight. I'm not sure. Okay, so we're looking at the set broad category I've been talking about for the last two or three lessons, why I believe in the pre-trib rapture. We've looked at what the rapture is in terms of defining it, and now we're looking at the second question, which is when is the rapture? Now, last time you may remember that I did a little sort of a little uh, demonstration up here in front, and uh, some of you may not have been here, but that is was really important, a good graphic demonstration that why uh, the church age believers will be raptured before the tribulation and that um, they won't go through the tribulation. Now, that works just for people who are premillennial. We'll get into the issues about premillennialism and amillennialism and postmillennialism when we... Um, uh, when we get there after we've studied the tribulation. There's another view called the panmillennialism. That's for people who just don't want to study anything and they just throw up their hands and say, well, it'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> so the pre, within a premillennial view, which is the view that is most consistent with a literal interpretation of Scripture, when we go to Revelation chapter 20, talking about a thousand-year period, Jesus returns at the end of Revelation 19. There are judgments that occur at the end of Revelation 19. Then Jesus establishes his kingdom in Revelation chapter 20 that will last for a, th- a thousand years upon the earth. And then at the conclusion of that chapter, we have the great white throne judgment. If you believe that's literal, that there is a future kingdom, then the issue becomes... What's the role of the church prior to that? It's immediately preceded by the tribulation. All premillennialists believe in a literal future seven-year tribulation. But if you're an amillennialist, you don't believe that. If you're a postmillennialist, you don't believe that. Therefore, they're not concerned at all with these issues related to the rapture. So if you believe in a pre-trib rapture, I mean, if you believe in a pre, premillennialism, then the issue becomes, when is the rapture? And what I pointed out last time through that little skit, that little uh, exercise, is to show that the millennium is populated by the offspring of the survivors of the tribulation. They will inherit from their, from their parents' sin nature. Many of them will believe, and many will also reject the gospel. And when Satan is released at the end of the thousand-year period, there will be just a horde of people, a host of people, who will follow him in a rebellion against the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's called the Gog and Magog Revolution, and 
God will destroy them. Now, in order for there to be mortals living at the beginning of the of the millennium who can have children, that means they had to have survived. There are tribulation saints who survived the tribulation and with their mortal bodies intact. Under a post-tribulation scenario, all believers, all living believers, are immediately translated at the rapture as Jesus comes to the earth, so they all have resurrection bodies. Under a post-tribulation scenario, there's no one to go into, there are no believers with mortal bodies to go into the millennial kingdom. And, and that's just a simple logical uh, observation that I think is devastating to the whole position of the post-trib rapture. All right, well, look at, let's look at the different views. The pre-trib rapture. The rapture occurs before the tribulation. We always shorten that to tribulation, such a long word that doesn't fall trippingly off of people's tongues, so it helps to just call it the pre-trib rapture. Uh, the rapture occurs before the tribulation. It ends the church age, so no church age believer will go through the tribulation. It, we can graph it out like this. The church age ends with the rapture. Sometime after the rapture, the tribulation begins. A second view that developed in the mid-19th century, now remember it was in the middle of the 19th century, that you have the, the, the systematic development of dispensational thought. Now, we know from numerous studies and more and more, uh, more and more evidence is surfacing now, especially due to the research of several people. But in the last 20 years or so, we have discovered evidence in ancient documents and especially more recently documents in Engl from England and the colonies that show that John Nelson Darby, the systematizer of dispensationalism, did not originate the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. That's been used by post-tribs and amils for decades to try to impugn the integrity of dispensationalism. Well, it's just a new kid on the block. It's so new, John Nelson Darby invented In fact, he was listening to the charismatic utterance of a woman named Margaret MacDonald. And that's where you got this false teaching of dispensationalism. Well, it's been proven to be false that, number one, if you read and study Margaret MacDonald's uh, utterance that took place in a somewhat semi-charismatic revival-type meeting in England in the 1830s, that it was actually a post-trib statement, not pre-trib. And number two, uh, the idea of a pre-trib rapture was around long before Darby was ever born. And in fact, it goes. the earliest we found is a statement by a writer who's referred to as pseudo-Ephraim. He wrote after the death of, of an early church father by the name of Ephraim the Syrian, and he wrote under his, his name as a pseudonym, uh, and, so, and so this was not uncommon in the early church. It was common both inside the church and outside the church for somebody to write under someone else's name. And so he's referred to as pseudo-Ephraim, pseudo-Ephraim the Syrian. And so we, it takes us all the way back to about the 4th or 5th century that we know someone clearly articulated a pre-trib rapture. But as they're working through this, especially among certain Plymouth Brethren group in the mid-19th century, they came up with this view of partial rapture. And this is another problem that a lot of evangelicals have had, a lot of Christians have had, is what do you do about Christians who are sinners? 
What do you do about Christians that are antinomian? What do you what do you do about Christians that that they've trusted in Christ but they 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 live like the devil? And so one of the solutions that came out of the Plymouth Brethren movement, and there were some in the Plymouth Brethren movement that were uh, to be nice, let's just say they were a little they had a trend towards legalism, is that they said, well, if you're not a Christian that's walking with Christ, then you won't get raptured. You'll get raptured along the way sometime during the tribulation. See, there's always this tendency among some, because they don't fully fathom grace, they've just got to punish uh, sinful believers, and so that's one of them. So the partial rapture view is that at the rapture, only those faithful, totally dedicated Christians will be caught up, leaving carnal Christians behind to be chastened by the tribulation. So spiritual Christians would go up before the tribulation. Carnal Christians would go up later on. I've even seen some who say, well, there may be multiple raptures through the tribulation period. You got one set of rapt- one rapture after the uh, uh, seal judgments, another rapture after the trumpet judgments, and another rapture later on. So that's a partial rapture view. That's not a very popular view. Then there was the mid-trib view, the mid Trib rapture view, that the rapture occurs in the middle of the tribulation, that the rapture would occur in the middle of the tribulation, thus believers would endure the first half. So this view actually, in its purest form, has the rapture at the halfway point. The the tribulation period is divided, according to Scripture, into two periods of three and a half years each. And so at the end of the first half, uh, at the time the Antichrist desecrates the temple in what's called the abomination of desolation, that's when you would have the mid-trib rapture. Now, there is a new view that's sort of a spin-off on this. In fact, most of the arguments, not all, but most of the arguments that work against the mid-trib view would also work against the, what's called the pre-wrath rapture view. Now, I understand that, that there are a lot of differences and I'm really summarizing this in a basic way, but the pre-wrath rapture view would, would put the uh, rapture about three-quarters of the way through the tribulation. In the pre-wrath rapture view, which was uh, developed and started to be taught uh, about 20 years ago by a, a man who was a well-known uh, dispensationalist. In fact, he was the head of a, a Jewish evangelistic uh, ministry, and he was uh, well-known well-trained in dispensationalism, but he saw the wrath of God, the term wrath of God, as a technical term for those final bowl judgments, and he would put those just in the last year or so of the tribulation period. So he invented this view called the pre-wrath rapture, and every now and then I run into somebody who gets caught up with this. It, 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 it was It was kind of a trendy thing for a lot of people as a new view back in the 90s, but a number of really excellent uh, excellent studies have been done showing the exegetical errors of this view. Then we have the uh, post-trib view, and the post-trib view says that the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation, and thus all church-age believers are forced to endure the entire seven-year period. So that just gives us our basic definitions of pre-trib rapture, partial rapture, mid-trib rapture, and pre-wrath rapture as we go forward talking about the rapture. Now, when we look at this, there are basically seven reasons that I'm going to give you for why the rapture should be before the tribulation. 
And I'm going to say my, my favorite reason has to do with understanding Daniel's 70th week, but that's the first point in what comes next, so I'm going to wait till we get there. But actually, that's one of my favorite views because in as we look at Daniel's 70th week, God told Daniel that a certain amount of time was was charted for his people, for your people and your city, obviously talking about the Jewish people, and that 483 years would go by before the Messiah would be cut off. And then there was a pause, and then there would be the last seven years. And it's that last seven-year period that applies to Israel, not to the church. And so really the basic reason that we have for understanding uh, the, a pre, pre-trib rapture is a distinction between Israel and the church. If if we have a consistent hermeneutic, we're going to understand that God has a plan for Israel and a separate plan for the church, that they are not equal. We, we've seen this in some way already, that God has a distinct plan for Israel and a distinct plan for the church. Israel is Israel. Israel is composed of those uh, believers, Old Testament saints, as well as uh, uh, future tribulation saints who are uh, believers in God's promise of the Messiah in the future tribulation. They will be believers in Jesus Christ. They're Jewish. In the, in the body of Christ in the church age, their, their ethnic Jewishness and their traditions and history are still theirs, but there's, they're, they're part of the church. Now, there's some, a lot of confusion on that in some people within the Messianic Jewish movement, but that's a totally different issue. We understand that God has a plan for the church and God has a plan for Israel. And in the church age, all Jews who become believers become part of the church. They become part of the church because of the baptism by God the Holy Spirit. And so that sets them apart from Jewish believers in the Old Testament or Jewish believers in the future tribulation period. Now, we've seen that God makes this distinction in Romans eleven twenty-five to 27. Now, in this passage, he's talking about the, the, the distinction between Gentiles and Jews, but he's applying it to the present age, which, of course, is the church age. So it applies to our, our topic here, where Paul says to the Roman, belief, Roman church, he says, For I don't want you to, to uh, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, once again, mystery being a previously unrevealed doctrine. This was never taught before. And so he tells the believers in Rome, remember there were both Jews and Christians there. This is a section, Romans 9 to 11, where Paul is still talking about God's faithfulness to the Jewish people. He says, uh, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own understanding, uh, wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the future of the gen- the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And once that comes in, then there's going to be a shift when that fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then he says in verse 26, and thus, and, and that word thus is an important technical word in the Greek, and here it means in this manner I'm about to tell you, in this way. And then he tells him, in this way all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer, will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So it's that future time when God applies that redemptive promise to Israel. But the point I'm making is that there's a clear distinction in this passage between God's plan for Gentiles and God's plan for Israel. 
And that also relates to God's plan for the church, which is what is happening in the context of Romans 11 because Paul is addressing the church in Rome. Now, the second reason uh, that we believe in a pre-trib rapture is because of the purposes for the pre-trib rapture. They don't relate to the church. God has certain purposes he's going to accomplish in the tribulation that are related to Israel and related to the world, but they're not related to the church. And so because there, of these four purposes, we know that the church is not going to be present or involved. First purpose is that God intends to execute judgment on the wicked nations who have rejected Christ, on the wicked Gentiles that have rejected Christ during this dispensation. So the church age ends with the rapture, and then there's going to be this horrendous period of divine judgment on uh, the kings of the earth, that's that phrase. For those of you who made it through the uh, Revelation series with me, that was a key term that was used throughout Revelation, the kings of the earth. And so they are the ones who are depicted, like like uh, David did in Psalm 2, as being united together, uh, antagonistic to and making war against God and his anointed. So the church is going to be removed so that God can then pour out judgment upon his, uh, upon the, the nations. Otherwise, you have God being guilty of uh, basically wife abuse because he's going to let his bride go through uh, seven years of abuse before the, the marriage to the bride. That just doesn't fit the pattern. So the bride is going to be removed from the earth for purification, which is what takes place in the judgment seat of Christ, and then returns as the bride of Christ at the end of the tribulation. Second reason, second purpose, is to demonstrate the inability of Satan to rule the planet. When we get into that period in Revelation, and go back, and I did a lengthy series at the beginning of Revelation chapter 5 to set the stage, we have all these things happening in both the angelic realm and the physical, visible realm upon the earth. In fact, I believe at the midpoint of the tribulation, at the time of the abomination of desolation, that is when Satan and his angels, uh, the, the demons, the fallen angels, are cast out of heaven and cast to the earth. And at this point, the angelic hosts, both elect angels and demons, become visible. You have these scenarios later on where angels flying through the heavens are making announcements of the gospel to mankind upon the earth. And that implies that they must be seen and heard by the people on the earth uh, that they can respond to these gospel announcements. They're little angels. And you have this depiction of demons on the earth. The reason for this is that in bringing everything to a close at the end of the tribulation period, what God is doing is he's finally bringing judgment upon all of his intelligent creatures, all of his sentient beings. He judges the angels. Uh, the angels are judged. Uh, the fallen angels are judged at the end of the tribulation. He judges the kings of the earth who have been in rebellion against him. He judges all of the unbelievers. Everything gets brought to a head. So and angels who have uh, fallen, rebelled against God, as well as humans who have rebelled against God, are all brought to this horrific judgment by the end of the tribulation period. So during this period, God sort of pulls back the restraint. Second Thessalonians 2, 2 says the restrainer is removed, God the Holy Spirit, and he's going to, as it were, take the governor off the engine so that it can just run at the, the engine of evil, Satan's engine of evil can just run at full speed 
to see what he can do to to uh, uh, bring in his own kingdom, and it all just falls apart. One of the great quotes from Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer in his Systematic Theology was that one of the evidences that Satan can't do what he wants to do, he can't be God, he can't control history, is all of the horrors in the world, all of the wars, all of the uh, all the horrible things that take place, the famines, everything else. Satan can't control the world that he's in charge of. He's the God of this age. He's the prince of the power of the air, but he can't control it. So what God is going to do is he's going to give him even more freedom during this period, and it, all the wheels come off and everything goes into a chaotic uh, mess, which is the final judgment upon uh, the rebellious beings. Third, it's going to provide time for millions to be saved. Every now and then I get this uh, this question raised as to, well, are, are many people saved during the tribulation? And it's interesting, if you think about the numbers that are used in, in Revelation, there are a lot of big numbers that are used. Uh, the angels are said to be myriads upon myriads, uh, which is a, 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 a huge number. You have 144,000 who are uh, saved out of Israel who go forth as evangelists. Now, that doesn't mean there's only 144,000 Jews that are saved, but there's 144,000 that, that are saved immediately uh, at near the beginning of the, of the, of the uh, tribulation and go out as evangelists. But if you look at all of these these large numbers that we have in in uh, Revelation chapter 7, and, and all of these, these numbers that are present there, that, that also talks about this huge multitude that appears before the throne of God. And in Revelation 7, verse 9, John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. Now, he's been numbering a lot of big, not, big crowds all through Revelation. But here he says there's a number that cannot be numbered, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. That pretty much covers the, the gamut. Uh, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. These are the martyred that have come out of the first part of the tribulation. There have been that many that have been martyred who have died under all these initial judgments, and they're before the throne of God. So yes, there will be millions who will be saved. And then fourth, to prepare the nation Israel for the Messiah and his kingdom. So these are the four purposes for the, for the tribulation. He's preparing the nation Israel. This brings to bear all of these uh, Old Testament prophecies, uh, passages like Joel chapter uh, 2, 28 to, to the first part of Joel 3, numerous passages in Isaiah as well as in Jeremiah, uh, n- numerous passages in Daniel that talk about what happens to Israel, bringing them back to a point of repentance toward God when God will re- recover them from the four corners of the earth, fulfilling the promise of the first part of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 3, and will restore them to the land and establish his kingdom. And so the set, that final seven years in God's plan for Israel is designed to bring them to this point of preparation for the Messiah and his kingdom. So, what do we see here in terms of the four, uh, these four purposes of the tribulation? We see that it's a time of preparation for Israel's restoration and conversion in these various passages. Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, 29 and 30, Jeremiah 30, 
verses 3 through 11, uh, Zechariah 12:10. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, time of Jacob's trouble, and uh, that's for the tribulation in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Some translations use tribulation, some translations use uh, the time of Jacob's distress, but it, because it's Jacob's distress, Jacob is a term that describes the grandson of, of Abraham. You have Abraham, Jacob, I mean Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob is resistant. He's the conniver. He's the manipulator. He's the heel grabber. He's the deceiver. He's always trying to manipulate things to his advantage. And Jacob became a term, Yaakov, meaning uh, heel grabber or the one, the grasping one, uh, that was his name, and, and it tends to be used in relation to uh, when he's not walking with the Lord. Later on, after he spent his years working for his um, uncle Laban and and getting his, his wife, uh, his wives Leah and Rachel, and when he finally comes back to the land, uh, he, is, uh, he wrestles with God at a place called Peniel, uh, which is over on the uh, Trans-Jordan side uh, of the Jordan. And he uh, he's, he loses his wrestling match with God. God gives him a new new name, Israel. And this is a name that is often used to speak of of, of Israel, the, his descendants, in a positive sense. But there, when when they're referred to as Jacob, that sort of emphasizes that sin nature control side. And so this is a time of Jacob's trouble, not the time of. Isaac's, I mean, of Israel's trouble, Jacob's trouble, emphasizing that that as Israel, as the Jewish people go into the tribulation period, they're still in a primarily in a state of rebellion against God and rejection of the Messiah. Third purpose is that the church currently experiences tribulations, as per John sixteen thirty three, but the church will not experience the tribulation. And then fourth. We see that the church, the term church, ecclesia, is mentioned 19 times in Revelation 1 through 3. But the term is not used at all between Revelation 4, 1, and chapter 19, the end of chapter 19. There's no mention of the church. The only time we see the church in Revelation 19 is when you see this cloud of people that are coming with the Lord when he returns. So there's no mention of the church. There's a gap there, and that that shows that the church is not present during that particular time. Now, just to show the, uh, what, the, what some of these passages emphasize in terms of Israel's distress during this period that this is for Israel, I want to briefly look at some of these passages that I've just, just quoted. In Deuteronomy 4.30, there's a promise, a prophecy-type promise from Moses of what will come in the future. It says, when you are in distress and all these things that come upon you in the latter days, that's all the judgments that are spelled out in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, that's in the future after all these things have happened to them. So at the end, in the latter days of Israel, they will be in distress. In Jeremiah 30, verse 7, says talking about the same period, says, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. And in Ezekiel, there is the prediction 
that God says, I will make you pass under the rod. This is an image of imagery of judgment. And I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And then in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, we know that this is for Daniel and his people. Uh, Daniel says, at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was, never was since there was a nation, even to that time, and at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. So this emphasizes this future time is for Israel. It is specifically focused upon Israel. The tribulation period is for Israel. Now, third... Let me back this up a minute. Mm -hmm. Okay. The church is never the object of the wrath of God. This is an answer to this pre-wrath rapture view. The scripture never says that the church, the bride of Christ, is the object of God's wrath. That would be like, that, as I used earlier, that it would be a, a, an image of God uh, abusing the bride of Christ. So, first thing we need to look at is an understanding of this term, wrath. Wrath is a technical term for the execution of the judgment of God. It's always used for the uh, execution of God's judgment in time. Rev uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 1 talks about the wrath of God being revealed today against those who are in rebellion against him, those who reject him. So it's always used as a term for wrath in time, not, as in contrast, it's not talking about the lake of fire. It's not talking about eternal punishment. It's talking about some kind of judgment, either now or during the tribulation, when God is pouring out his judgment upon the earth. In Revelation, the word is first used in Revelation chapter 6, in talking about the sixth seal judgment. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, uh, there is this uh, great earthquake upon the earth, and then the, the sky is going to, uh, verse 14 says, the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. This massive worldwide earthquake that's going to uh, create uh, just geological trauma on the earth, there's going to be, um, rock slides and mountain slides, all these co cosmic disturbances that take place related to the sun will be turned black as sackcloth and the moon like blood. Uh, that's the real blood moon, not what we're seeing right now. And I believe there's two more blood moons. Uh, we talked about that. That's on the website. Uh, some people are making an issue out of this blood moon thing. Um, it has nothing to do with prophecy. This has to do with a specific event that takes specific times in the end times, in the tribulation period. But in verse 16, we have 15 and 16, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man will hide themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. This is the first time this is used. It's talking about the wrath of the Lamb. So the wrath of God doesn't come at the end of the tribulation period. 
It begins with the first set of seal judgments that occurs during the first part, probably the first two years in the tribulation period. That wrath is worldwide in scope, and it involves supernatural judgments and signs and wonders, various cosmological and astrological judgments and events that take place upon the earth, and it results in the deaths of billions. Billions of people are going to die during the, this, these first six uh, judgments. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10, Paul says, For God, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 1 Thessalonians 1, 10 are great promises. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. In this sense, it, I, I don't think this is talking about phase one. This is talking about ultimate deliverance from eschatological wrath during the tribulation. God has, is going to obtain deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 1.10 introduced that concept where Paul said, We are to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the wrath to come is talking about this future tribulation period, and we are delivered from that completely and totally. We're not going to go into some pre-wrath uh, period uh, that's preceded by five or six years of the tribulation, and then we're raptured just before a final stage. We're delivered totally from the wrath to come. Another great verse for this is in Revelation chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Now, if you look in your Bible in Revelation 3, 9 and 10, you will see that I have repunctuated this verse. We went through this. If you want to hear the details, go back to listen to the lesson in Revelation chapter 3. But this is very important. One of the things you should understand about that every English translation has certain idiosyncrasies, certain, certain characteristics. And when the translators of the New King James, I mean, translators of the King James Bible were doing it, they tried to break down every Greek sentence so that every sentence in English would, would be a sentence. If they couldn't do that, then they would make two verses, you know, break them down so that two verses would be a sentence. John Niemöller did a tremendous study some years ago tracing all of these, uh, what's in the Greek is called a hadi clause because the Greek word translated because is the word hadi. And he demonstrated that about uh, 80 or 90 percent of the time, that a hadi clause comes at the end of the statement, not at the beginning. It doesn't introduce a concept. If you look at Revelation 3, 9, and 10, 10 begins where I put that asterisk by because. The, the King James translators broke it at the end of verse 9, where it would, it would read, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you, period. They stopped it there. The next verse said, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. If that's the way it should be read, then the promise of being kept from the hour of testing would be predicated upon keeping the word of, of God's perseverance or persevering in obedience. Well, there's something wrong with it. That's, a, that's basing it on works, for one thing. 
But grammatically, John did a great job really drilling down, looking at every single use, hundreds of uses of, of hadi in the Greek New Testament, and demonstrates that the way it should be punctuated is that this causal statement at the end belongs to verse 9. I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. Verse 9 is talking about a reward. It's not talking about salvation. And then verse 10, the latter part of verse 10, remember the Greek text did not have verses. The latter part is an independent statement where God promises, in addition, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. So the, that shows the pur- what's the purpose for the tribulation? to test, to judge the earth dwellers, the kings of the earth. That's stated in verse verse 10. So the point that I'm making here is that this emphasizes God will remove the church before this hour of tribulation. Matthew uh, 24, uh, 21, then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of time. Now, what the, this set of verses that I'm talking about here takes us to the next point I'm making and that is that the judgments of the tribulation are unique in all of human history. We can't mistake it. Somebody recently asked me a question, and uh, I'm going to go back because it, I covered it in detail when we went through Revelation, but it needs to be reiterated again and again because it is a common misunderstanding. It's so common that people like Lewis Berry Chafer and John Walbert and several others made this mistake. In Matthew chapter 24, you can turn with me in your Bible. We'll look at this for a, a little bit. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is answering a question from his disciples related to the timing of his return. Jesus had just made a statement about Jerusalem at the end of chapter 23. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is saying, he's pronouncing a judgment on Jerusalem and saying, because you've rejected me, I'm not going to come back to you until you invite me, until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That won't occur until the end of the tribulation period. Then Jesus leaves that location, Matthew 24, 1, at the temple, he leaves that, that, and I want you, if you've been to Israel, the temple is on the uh, east, on the west side of the Kidron Valley, and then he walks with his disciples down away from the temple, and he's walking down across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus makes a comment. He said, do you see all these things? Or excuse me, let's look at verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up showing him the buildings of the temple. He's just looking at the buildings in the temple, the, the temple itself, the, the, uh, the heros. He says, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Somebody asked me a long time ago, well, what about the, the wailing wall, what is more accurately called the western wall? Uh, the, the Western Wall wasn't part of the temple, was part of temple buildings. The Western Wall was simply a restraining wall that when 
uh, Herod the Great was rebuilding the temple, was basically remodeling the temple. Uh, he had to level the top of that mountain. Apparently before that it was still somewhat uh, rugged. And he needed to level this and bring in all of this dirt to establish a foundation for this enormous t- structure that he was going to build, something that would hold the weight. And so he built all the way around the Temple Mount a restraining wall to hold all of this dirt and all these rocks and everything that they brought in to level that, that, that mount. That's what's left is what's referred to as the Western Wall. It's that Western uh, retaining wall. That was part of it. It's not part of the temple buildings at all. So Jesus said, not one stone, talking about the buildings, not one stone will be left upon another. They shall be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, so he's walked across the uh, Kidron Valley. He's up on the Mount of Olives, and he's looking back at the temple. And the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? When is Israel going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? When is the temple going to be torn down? When's this going to happen? When will these things be? And second, what will be the sign of your coming? This isn't talking about the rapture. That hasn't been revealed yet. It's talking about uh, his coming. What will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? What's the question? The question is not, what are the signs before the rapture? The question is, what are the signs of your coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation? Jesus' answers are going to be related to the things that are signs of his coming at the end of the tribulation. He's not talking about things that are going on in the church age. He goes on to say, take a warning of false teachers, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. How many times have we heard false messiahs since AD 70? How many false prophets were there in the Old Testament? There were a lot. There were a, there's, a, there's a huge number. But when, what Jesus is talking about is something different from what happened in the Old Testament or what happened in the church age. These are significantly different because these will be signs of his coming. They will indicate that his coming, the second coming, are new. The false prophets that we see in the tribulation period operate on an order of power because of their demonic and satanic empowerment in the last half of the tribulation that far exceeds, you know, Anybody on the present stage, whoever you might think of, whether it's a Benny Hinn or whether it's uh, Muhammad or whoever you think of, there are false prophets that occur all through Old Testament period, New Testament period. Jesus is talking about something that is particularly significant. It's a sign of his coming. That means it's not like every other false prophet. These are going to be false prophets of a totally different order. He says, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many, and you will hear wars and rumors of wars. There have been wars and rumors of wars since before the flood. The wars and rumors of wars we hear now aren't any different from the wars and rumors of wars of 200 years ago or 500 years ago, 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 years ago. They may be a little more horrendous because of technology, but they're basically of the same order. Jesus is talking about 
wars and rumors of wars that are going to be significantly and categorically different than what we have today because they're going to they're going to be so different that we can that they're going to be signs of his coming and when you look at the seal judgments those six seal judgments uh that are described in revelation chapter 6 they they line up perfectly with what Jesus says in this part of this section and so what he's talking about here are not wars and rumors of war that are trends in the church age he's talking about this the, these world wars that take place during the first part of the tribulation that make World War I and World War II pale in comparison. They're of a much more intense order. He goes on to say, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you're not troubled, for these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. See, they're taking place in the first half of the tribulation, but it's going to get worse. For nation will rise up against nation, that's the second seal judgment, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. Famines, that's the third seal judgment. Pestilences, that's the fifth seal judgment. Earthquakes in various places, that's the sixth seal judgments. And in verse 8 says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. They're birth pangs. That occurs within this Daniel 70th week, not before it. It says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. That's the fifth seal judgment of martyrs. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. See, that is follows those famines and pestilences and earthquakes. There have always been earthquakes. There have always been. We, we report them more now. There was a study, in fact, in one of the early pre-trib meetings, you can still go back and look at this on the pretrib.org website. There was a, a study that was presented by Dr. Steve Austin. Y'all know Steve. Steve t- spoke here uh, four or five years ago at the Creation Conference. He's a geologist. He did a study on on the uh, distribution spread and the um, frequency of, of earthquakes. His conclusion was they're not any more frequent today than they were many hundreds of years ago. They're reported more. We have instruments that identify these things now that we couldn't before, but the um, frequency isn't any greater. Now, the final thing I'm going to say about this is that is go to verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, when does the abomination of desolation take place? Midpoint. So Jesus is it's totally logical and consistent that from verse 4 to verse 14, Jesus is talking about what happens before the midpoint, what happens in the first age. That means, I hate to tell you this, that means Walford was dead wrong, Chafer was dead wrong, both of the pastors you ever heard were dead wrong. Sure, there are famines and earthquakes and pestilences and wars. They were there in the Old Testament. They're there in the New Testament. They're there all throughout the church age. But what Jesus is talking about is that these are going to be of such a higher order and intensity that they will rise to the level of signifying the proximity of the second coming. Okay? That's different. All of this is within Daniel's 70th week. All of this that he's describing here is within that, that, that period of time. So those signs are, are very, very important. So the second half, when he gets to describing the second half, it gets even more intense. And in verse 21, he says, For then 
there will be great tribulation. Now, this term, great tribulation, isn't a technical term for the second half. He's just saying, then it's really going to get bad. I've just described that it is bad to an order you can't imagine in the first half. But then after the abomination of desolation, it's going to get even worse. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Revelation, that in the first half of the tribulation, when you have the seal judgments and then the trumpet judgments, that they are incredible. They are horrible. We've never seen anything like this on planet Earth. But after the midpoint, after Revelation chapter 11, it really gets bad. That is, so great tribulation is, a tech, is not a technical term for the second half. It's just a term for the intensity of the affliction that will occur that has not occurred when? Since the beginning of the world until now. There's never been anything that even remotely resembles what's going to happen. And that's directly out of the Old Testament. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. It is not like anything we've ever seen before or ever even imagined. Daniel 12, 1 says, And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation. When was the first? When, when were there nations? After the Tower of Babel. What happened 200 years before the Tower of Babel? The flood. There was a massive judgment. So, so he's not saying it's never occurred ever before, but this is the worst judgment that's ever occurred since the Tower of Babel, since there were nations until that time. Joel 2, uh, 2 ends by saying there's never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. So talking about the tribulation and the tribulation judgments, these are more incredible than anything that has ever been seen before. Now, I'm going to stop here because the next point is imminency. And this is a very important understanding for the doctrine of the pre-trib rapture is that the coming of Christ for the church could be at any moment. There's no prophecy that must be fulfilled before Jesus returns for the church. It could happen at any moment. Paul expected it during his lifetime. It could happen with that, that nothing has to happen. Now, there are prophecies related to setting the stage and preparing things for what will happen after the rapture that may, uh, that may be fulfilled before the rapture, but they have nothing to do with the timing of the rapture. They, have to, they just have to do with stage setting for what comes after the rapture. So it, they, that, that doesn't affect... Imminency. So we can say, see, this is part of the final return of Israel to the land. That's fulfillment of prophecy. But that doesn't have anything to do with the rapture because hundreds of years could go by before the, still before the rapture occurs. It just has to do stage setting, prophecy that's fulfilled in relation to what comes after the rapture has nothing whatsoever to do with the timing of the rapture. The rapture can occur at any moment. So we'll look at imminency next time. We'll stop here and come back and finish this up with imminency next time. So gosh, I got through 25 slides of 80. I'm ready for the next two weeks. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to work our way through these great passages that comfort us 
as Paul said in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, comfort one another with these things. They comfort us, not because we're going to avoid difficulties and adversity in life, but because we know that you have a plan that eventually things will come to a horrendous end. And if we're alive at that time, we won't be here. We will be taken to be with the Lord in the air for the purposes that you have for the church. And we need to be prepared for that time. Because once that occurs, then the judgment for church-age believers at the judgment seat of Christ and what we're doing today is what prepares us for that time and for what comes after. And, Father, we need to focus on living today in light of eternity. Pray that you will keep us mindful of that in Christ's name. Amen.